0: We're back in uh, Mark 13. We've come as far as verse 9. And you know some of the apostles had asked him about when will these things both be fulfilled, like the stones of the temple being cast down, so forth. And then he started talking to them about wars and rumors of wars. But the end is not yet. He says, don't be troubled by those things. The end is not yet. And then uh, earthquakes. Uh, famines and troubles, the beginning of sorrows. Um, In verse 8 where Mark mentions troubles, Matthew and Luke add the mention of pestilences. Now Mark's word means troubles or human tumult or rioting, so we might think of pestilent people, but it's also used of diseases. And then uh, Matthew and Luke talk about um, pestilences is being part of this beginnings of sorrows, which may seem pertinent to us considering the last couple of years. But as pestilences go, the most recent one has been quite mild. I'm not trying to minimize the fact I mean we lost two wonderful brothers from our own small fellowship, so there's suffering involved and, and it's it's not it's not that it's not serious. But compared to to pestilences in the past and compared to pestilences in the future. This one has been quite mild, particularly the, the death rate, people succumbing to it. Much more deadly diseases have happened in the past and seem certain to have come in the future if we just read what the Lord says. Uh, as if we don't have enough naturally, we seem to be creating our own pestilences And certainly we have threats of chemical and biological warfare, which could also be classified in this category. But as we come to verse 9, Jesus has a more personal word for these guys. He says, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. (coughs) And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So Jesus begins by telling them, watch out for yourselves. And this is in the Greek tense is a present imperative, which they tell me is something. It's like, you must continually do this. It's very, very much emphatic. Uh, There will be hostility. So you got to watch out for yourselves and what's going on here. And he's already warned them against, you know, not allowing anyone to deceive them. So Jesus has this more personal word for the apostles than for the future Jewish believers in Christ Jesus. Uh, it can also be applied to Gentile believers, but the language here we're going to see is, is very Jewish in what is being said. Certain Gentile believers through the ages have also been brought before governing officials, and the admonitions given here can be applied to them, but the language is particularly Jewish. Gentile believers have not been brought before Sanhedrins, which is the word councils here, or beaten in synagogues. I don't know of any Gentile believers that have been beaten, in, especially not recently. They uh, certainly have been beaten and even martyred in religious persecutions. Uh, we could substitute for the language here. I'm talking about uh, Gentile believers, ecclesiastical authorities, and inquisitions. They would be called before to give testimony. But as we mentioned before, the focus of prophecy is Israel and how events impact Israel. For example, there's no exhortation later for those in Washington, D.C. to flee to Virginia. We find the exhortation fleeing from Jerusalem, getting out of town. I don't know of any Gentile Christians for millennia who have been attacked by Jews or brought before synagogues. Sometimes today, Jewish believers in Yeshua have been attacked by the ultra-Orthodox for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. Even these attacks tend to be verbal rather than physical. Jewish people do not attack Christians, uh, except maybe Jewish-believing Christians, Messianic Jews. Many Jews today theorize that Jesus is the Messiah for the Gentiles. They don't need him. We need him. They don't need him. They wait for the Messiah who will cast off their enemies and set up the kingdom of David. And he will bring lasting peace to the nation of Israel, which they say Jesus did not do. Of course, they do need him, as do all men. John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. In John 1, and verse 11, we read, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The nation... Most of the nation rejected him as their Messiah. But as many as received him, again, this is in the context of his own, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so uh, anybody who receives him has the right to become a child of God. It goes beyond the Jew, of course, to the Gentile. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, he said, uh, Peter preaching says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. So the gospel is first to the Jew, and then also to the Gentile. According to Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek. Jesus first came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then the gospel was expanded to include folks like me. What Jesus is saying in this passage here, uh, he's saying that people who follow him are going to be persecuted. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's unusual. Don't think he has abandoned you. If this happens, or perhaps when this happens, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter says to them, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Well, some of these men that Jesus is speaking to were delivered up. They were apprehended by councils, that is the Sanhedrins. Um, There was more than one Sanhedrin. There was the National Sanhedrin, which was made up of 71 leaders. There were local Sanhedrins. Um, There were 23 men in places where there were... uh, cities where there are over 100 Jewish men, I think. They had a council of 23 men. Um, Some of these are brought before rulers and kings. We see Saul slash Paul. And Jesus said, you'll be brought before them for my sake, my namesake or my sake. Notice the qualifying phrase. It's not the power of rulers or kings that brings this about, but the Lord. As Paul referred to himself as the prisoner of the Lord when he was in Roman custody. The purpose is that the rulers and kings might have the testimony of Jesus the Messiah and of their need to repent and receive him. So if you get called before school boards or city councils or county councils or the governorship, the purpose is so that you might give a testimony to them so that they can hear the gospel. If you're brought before authorities on any level, uh, because this does have broad application, even though the specific language concerns those in Israel, may it be for his name's sake that you may bear testimony to the lordship of Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection. Give the gospel as a testimony to them. And he says you'll be beaten in the synagogues. When condemned, uh, Jewish men would be beaten. 39 stripes. Deuteronomy 25, verses 2 and 3, he says, Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. The blows might vary depending on what the offense was. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So the beating was not for the purpose of humiliation. 40 blows and no more. So they would only give 39 because they didn't want to have the you know, accidental case of going beyond the 40. Um, there were 39 stripes. 13 were given to the chest and 26 to the back of a man who was getting 39 stripes from the Jew, Jewish councils. In Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, talking about his own suffering, he says, In verse 18, he says, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. A little sarcasm there. (laughs) For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Paul's defending his apostleship for their sake. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, boasting. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. think what Paul's body must have looked like if he had his shirt off. You know, 13 times five on the chest, 26 times five on the back. Three times I was beaten with rods. This would have been probably a Roman uh, punishment. And, you know, now we call it what? Painting, yeah. (laughs) Getting beaten with rods is caning and We had that incident years ago with with China, and a young man was beaten uh, severely. So he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We have record of that in in the book of Acts. They thought he was dead. Uh, And then he got up and went back into the city. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only have a record of one of those. (laughs) A night and a day I've been in the deep that is, he was floating around, in probably in the Mediterranean, for a night and a day before he was picked up by somebody. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. He was in perils, a lot. In perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils with among false brethren. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things that comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul probably suffered more than any of the other apostles. And, you know, this was part of God's plan for him. And Jesus told him about this right at the beginning. You know, when he sent Ananias to him, he says, tell him all the things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul Zealous for the Lord, apart from Christ, when he realized that Jesus was the Messiah, that zealousness was transferred, moved over. So we consider the language Sanhedrins and synagogues. It involves Jewish believers in Messiah. But uh, some of these men also stood before the Gentile authorities. We find Paul um, in Acts 23. Uh, He was about to be torn apart by the Jews there in Jerusalem. And the Roman commander comes and says in verse 10. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So the Lord uses this Roman commander to rescue Paul. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So he's telling Paul, you're going to be standing before Caesar. And you're going to bear testimony to me. And that's what we read here. The purpose is that you might uh, bear testimony before them for my sake. In Acts 27 as well. Uh, when the uh, ship Paul's about to experience, it's probably his third shipwreck. uh, Because this is the one that we have recorded at the end of the book of Acts, near the end. Acts 27, 23 says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, speaking to his shipmates, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul... He stood before them, you know. Of course, he stood before Felix and Festus. Paul just longed to bear testimony to his countrymen in any way that he could, and so he had some opportunities to do that. Peter, according to tradition, you know, was judged in Rome. It's not recorded for us in Scripture, and then was crucified. And of course, John on the island, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. For his testimony, Revelation one nine, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, these three apostles and probably the others stood before Gentile authorities and gave witness as well as before the Jewish authorities. We know... Peter and John and some of the other apostles were uh, called before the Sanhedrin in the early parts of the book of Acts and gave testimony to who Jesus is. And James was apprehended and was beheaded. So the church of Acts suffered persecution, beatings, and imprisonment and martyrdom. And the church throughout the ages is promised the same. In Acts chapter 14, and verse verses 21 and 22, this is after Paul was left for dead. In verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And Lystra is the city he was stoned in, you know, so he goes back. To strengthen the disciples, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation is what we're promised in this world. It's one of the things we're promised. Uh, we're also uh, promised that he's overcome the world. Right? But there's a difference between tribulations and the great tribulation. He's not talking about that with these men in this passage, but we will have tribulation. Jesus went as a lamb to the slaughter, and his followers will be treated likewise. If you stand on the gospel and the moral principles given by God in his word concerning gender, marriage, and sex, for example, you'll pay a price. If you believe the Bible over the narrative of the day, for example, creation and evolution, and you say so, you'll pay a price. It may be mild. It may be rejection or ridicule. Oh, you really believe that story about Jonah and the big fish? It may be ridicule from your friends, family, or acquaintances. They may consider you or call you a fool. Or treat you in a condescending manner. Or it may be more severe. It may take away your employment, your income, your livelihood. It may take away your freedom. It may even take away your life. As Jesus says here, family members betraying other family members. Over in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 24, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. True to the Lord, and he's the one who will bring all things to light concerning those, you know, what's right, what's wrong, those who have served him, those who haven't. But the disciples is not above his teacher. Matthew chapter 5, 10 through 12. Each believer must decide if he or she will stand on the truth of God. Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't fear. If you stand on God's truth, you will be vindicated and you will have the blessing of the Lord upon you. Then Jesus says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now some have sought to hurry the return of Jesus by missions either in person or by media. This does not say that the gospel will reach every person, but it must go to every nation. Again, he's using the, the word ethnos here, every ethnic group, tribe, people. There are still many unreached people groups and languages in our day, or these ethnos. Uh, and when it speaks of it being preached to all the nations, for example, the... Um, That is the ethnos in Revelation chapter 9. After the introduction of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists in verse 9, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. So we're going to find people from all these groups that are going to be there in heaven because they've heard the gospel. The gospel has been um, preached where they are. Now the preaching of, of the gospel has been committed to believing men and women. But during the tribulation period, an angel will be sent forth to proclaim the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That's Revelation 14. 6 and 7, the 144,000 are also mentioned here in this chapter. And then it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So, uh, everybody in that day is going to be covered, right? Because this angel is going to be proclaiming it. If, if anybody gets missed by the efforts of missionaries and satellites and so forth. Uh, interestingly, Paul in his day, like a couple of times in Colossians, Colossians 1.6, he says, he's talking about the gospel and he says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. And is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Paul said, the gospel has been proclaimed in all the world in his day. In Colossians one twenty-three, he says, speaking of them, says, If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Of course, there are many people who have lived after that time, and the gospel has to be preached to them as well. In our day, it has not... Well, in our day, it has been preached everywhere. But many have not heard not having a receiver with which to pick up the signal. The signal's out there all around the world. But many people don't have access to to pick it up. Uh, they won't be responsible before God if they haven't heard it. They won't be responsible for that message. Some will only hear the message by those who go in person and present the gospel to them. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 18, he says, "...whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent?" As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In other words, there's, God has spoken to everyone, everywhere. Not necessarily the specific gospel message, but he's given everyone a measure of the truth so that they might respond to him. And not all will respond, of course. In any case, men and women will be without excuse since we are responsible for responding to the light we receive from God. In Romans 1.20, Says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God will give more light to the one who responds to the light that he has. But we cannot speed up the return of Jesus by anything we do. He has the timing set perfectly. But still we have a responsibility to carry his gospel to all for which we have opportunity. That may include going or certainly providing support for those who go or who proclaim the gospel in unreached areas. When they rescue, he says, don't take any thought for what you're going to say. The words will be given to you. Uh, We see this in the life of the apostles. This is for... The apostles and all future believers, including us, uh, we see them being given words to speak. On the day of Pentecost, when they were filled with the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, we find Peter standing up and speaking extemporaneously just what the Lord gives him, And 3,000 were saved that day. The power of the Holy Spirit to... It's necessary to testify to the gospel of Jesus. It's so necessary to be filled with the Spirit for effective service to Him. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, Jesus getting ready to depart from them, being taken into heaven. says in verse 4, "...being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me." For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They had to wait until they were filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit before they went forth. It says, therefore, when they had come together, they ask him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes us effective witnesses for him. So these men testified throughout the book of Acts in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus promises here that words will be given when taken before men, that is, arrested, arrested. Or delivered up to the authorities. This is not a time to prepare your speech, but rather to depend upon the guidance of the Spirit, speaking what they are given by the Lord. Now, some have used this as a reason to never prepare what they're going to say. For example, from the pulpit, there is a place for extemporaneous speech. There are situations where there's no time to prepare. Or, you know, there should be anointing by the Spirit in what is being said or taught, and the Lord may. Uh, interject something that he gives at that time. But generally, the gospel worker is exhorted in 2 Timothy 2.15 to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There are those who are called to minister to the body of Christ through laboring in the word to teach and exhort and comfort Yet, it is necessary for all to be diligent in the Word for daily life and ministry in the Spirit uh, in this lost world. We're all responsible. Uh, there's a special uh, calling and gift for some. But uh, there needs to be uh, inspiration of the Spirit as well as a study, uh, effort put into preparing a message. I heard Joe Foch, Foch speaking He's a pastor in Philly speaking of this about sermon preparation, and someone had told him, uh, All inspiration and no perspiration is irresponsibility. And he responded, Yes, but all perspiration and no inspiration is B.O. <laughs> Preparing ahead of time to deliver a message from the Lord to believers and in evangelizing unbelievers is prudent and commanded, but much depends upon the situation. But in both instances, being filled with the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding and presenting the truth. William MacDonald says this promise... That Jesus gives here should not be used as an excuse for not preparing sermons or gospel messages today, but it is a guarantee of supernatural help for crisis times. It's a promise for martyrs, not ministers. I heard once a story of a preacher who didn't prepare or study because he said, well, the Lord will speak to me when I get up to speak. And sure enough, when he got up to speak, the Lord spoke to him and the Lord said, you should have studied Uh, J. Vernon McGee also talks about this. He said, this is no verse for a lazy preacher to use as an excuse for not preparing a sermon. And uh, McGee had a, a friend who was taking a train trip and he was on the platform. He was walking back and forth and he was rehearsing something, you know. And so this other guy comes up to him and says, are you a preacher? And he says, yes. And he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm going over my notes for my sermon." He says, you mean you prepare your sermon beforehand? Of course, don't you? No, I don't. I wait until I get up there and the Spirit of God gives me a message. Well, suppose the Spirit of God doesn't give you the message immediately. What do you do then? Oh, I just mess around till he does. <laughs> and McGee, like he says, brand. I'm afraid there's a lot of messing around today. <laughs> But the Lord's given his word for a reason. It is not to be neglected, but expounded with, and giving the sense thereof. That's teaching the word. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when the people are brought back from captivity. In verse 1, it says, All the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seven months. So anybody could understand the language and comprehend what was being spoken. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And at his left hand stood Padaiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashum, Hashbana, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mutmashulam. So he's got... People on both sides of him, they're going to help repeat. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. So they stood up from morning until midday to hear the word. You know, now we reverse the order. But in the synagogues, the teacher would sit and the people would stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yemen, Akub, Chebathai, Hodijah, etc., and the Levites helped the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So it wasn't just that they read and people got it. You know, it was they taught. Second uh, Chronicles 17 in the Jehoshaphat's reign when he was doing reforms and all, it says in verse 3, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat and he had riches and honor in abundance. And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Also in the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders, ben Hal, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanel, and Micaiah to teach in the cities of Judah. So he actually sent these men out to teach The word of God. And with them he sent Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, the rest of the guys. And with them Elishama and Jehoram the priests. And so they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah. So that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. So this Teaching, expounding of the word, preparing and studying goes back. And of course you need to check out what's being said according to the word of God as the Bereans did in Acts 17. You know, when Paul came and presented the gospel to them, it says they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what he was saying was true. Did it line up with what God has said? And if you need to check out the Apostle Paul, you certainly need to check out Bob or anybody else that's up here or anybody else anywhere. (laughs) So you might find a a, a minister practicing a sermon. But Jesus never practiced a sermon. He's been popularly presented that way recently in a a drama. He never put a word wrong. He never misspoke. To indicate such a thing makes Jesus less than the Bible says he is. He is the great I am, not the great I think I am, or the great I hope I am. In Colossians 2.9 we're told, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. His manhood was subjected to his Godhood so that he could declare that he was without sin. In John chapter 12, verses 49-50, Jesus says, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. I mean, he he is the Word of God. He's with an exception to having to study. the word in order to teach. John 14.10, he says, do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And then later here in Mark 13, and verse 31, Heaven and earth will, earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He didn't waste any words. And I'm in the point in my life, maybe it's because I'm old, where I'm amazed that Christians are not horrified by words being put into the mouth of Jesus. For example, in dramatic productions. I haven't always seen it this way, and I'm not standing in judgment over over anyone, but that's that's where I am now. If God does not want us to add to the words of this book, the Bible, He tells us that in Revelation 28, or 22, (laughs) 28, that would be good. (laughs) 22:18 22, 18 through 19, he says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from things which are written in this book. And some might say, well, that's only the book of Revelation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God which I command you. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32, he says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. And Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, tells us, Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Uh, We should certainly not add to Jesus' words for dramatic effect. Or for a story presentation. In First Peter chapter two and verse two, Peter says, "As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby." That's pure. <laughs> Psalm one nineteen one forty. Your word is very pure; therefore, your servant loves it. And as we just read in in uh, Proverbs thirty verse five, every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in Him. In Second Corinthians chapter eleven, or yeah, chapter eleven, verse three, he says, "I fear lest somehow, somehow, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ." Let's keep the simplicity that is in Christ and not introduce or add unscriptural concepts, however subtly, to the Jesus of Scripture. So as I was Thinking about these things, it reminded me of Malcolm, Malcolm and Alwyn's song back in the 70s probably. It was called Say It Like It Is. <laughs> and they were saying, don't dress up my gospel in fancy clothes. Don't gloss up my Jesus for the London shows. They were from England. He'll take care of himself wherever he goes. You just say it like it is. And they repeat that a few times. He didn't come to put mysteries within your mind or even go to college to study for words that rhyme. Man, he would never even have wasted his time. And he's not saying anybody goes to college wasting their time. You know. But He just said it like it is. Don't fix my Jesus in some stained glass frame or pretend to be trendy just by speaking his name. He won't fit into any superstar game. That kind of gives you the time frame. (laughs) If you're not familiar with Jesus Christ Superstar was out at this time. He won't fit into any superstar game. You just say it like it is. The only way we can say it like it is is by being consistent with what the scriptures say about him. Otherwise, we're not saying it quite like it is. He then says that about family members betraying one another, and we're, we're seeing this often in the world today, particularly in Islamic nations uh, and areas presently. These are known as honor killings. Uh, if someone converts to uh, being a Christian, believing in Jesus in an Islamic family, many times, uh, it's not the majority of families I'm sure, many times they're, they're killed. Uh, because that's the penalty for apostasy is being being killed. Uh, but it also takes place in North Korea. If someone is accidentally betrayed as being Christian, say your child accidentally lets out of the bag. Yeah, my mom and dad, they got a Bible at home, you know. Uh, then they, you know, be imprisoned or even killed. China, India, among the Hindus as well as the Muslims, and Central America, you know, among Religious groups there, many Catholic groups will drive people out of their villages that uh, leave Catholicism or persecute them in other ways. David Guzik says, it's easy for us to underestimate how difficult a time of persecution can be. I think it is difficult for us. While few Christians in the Western world face persecution, Christians in other parts of the world often face these trials. He says, if I came from an Orthodox Jewish family, they might consider me a blasphemer and account me as dead for choosing Jesus. Many times a young person in a Jewish family converts, they believe in Yeshua, Hamashiach. Uh, They will be considered dead by their family. They won't actually kill them. Jewish families don't do that, Uh, but they will consider them as being dead and they have no further interaction with them. He says, if I came from a strict Muslim family, I might be rejected by my family and be literally killed for choosing Jesus. If I came from a Hindu family in India, I could be rejected and martyred for choosing Jesus. Even the Buddhists will get violent sometimes when confronted with people proclaiming the gospel. In China, I would be allowed to practice Christianity only in the state-sponsored church or be persecuted. My church might be one of the 1,500 destroyed or shut down since November of 2000. In Sudan, I might be killed or literally enslaved by a Muslim army. In Indonesia, I might be given a choice by Muslims, convert to Islam or die, or I might have my church bombed during a worship service. In Pakistan, I might be jailed by Muslim government officials. According to David B. Barrett in his book, Today's Martyrs, some 165,000 Christians died for their faith in the year 2000. It's, um, well, they're estimating now in the decade from 2011 to 2020, 90,000 Christians per year were killed for their faith. Now, you know, of course, they don't have exact numbers. They're estimating based on the reports that have been received. Researchers estimate that since the day of Pentecost, more than 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith. A persecution index provided by Open Doors with Brother Andrew listed 28 countries with strong or massive persecution. In another 23 countries, Christians suffer discrimination and in some regions, severe harassment. Open Doors just published their uh, list of the top 50 countries where Christians are persecuted for 2022. My uh, Cover 2021 was just published this month, um, and North Korea has been at the top for the last 20 years, above even all the Muslim nations. They're now in second place, and the first place has been taken over by Afghanistan and the Taliban and their severe persecution of, of Christian believers. In the past century, some 35 million Christians were martyred for their faith. You know, they're estimating 43 million since the day of Pentecost. Well, in the preceding century from here to 100 years ago, 35 million Christians martyred for their faith, making our times by far the most deadly time for believers. Uh, But this will be prevalent as well and increasingly so as the end times progress. The tribulation period will be a time of great danger for believers and many will die a martyr's death. Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Revelation 12 and verse 11, speaking about this time as well, says uh, of the believers, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So that's the price that will be paid during the tribulation. And these, are, these people are known as tribulation saints that we're talking about. Me. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. Believers in Jesus will be hated by all because of his name. He's late, He's hated by the world. Who will not acknowledge him as their Lord and only Savior. And they substitute another Jesus who is not another but a counterfeit. There is only one Savior. Everyone loves their own Jesus. But everyone does not love the biblical Jesus. They have to correct the attributes they do not like. And so they love a fictional Jesus. A fictional Jesus is not real and cannot save. We must be very jealous of the true Jesus presenting him as he truly is. In John 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But in all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. All these things they will do. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But, I now, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Bless you. Those who are true to him will be hated as he was without a cause. They are despised by the world because they will not celebrate the degeneracy of the wicked, sinful living, just as Lot was despised. The last days are as the days of Lot. William MacDonald, again, says another feature of tribulation days, and some now would say, will be widespread because of those who are loyal to the Savior. Family members will serve as informers against believers. A great wave of anti-Christian sentiment will sweep the world. It will take courage to remain true to the Lord Jesus. But he who endures, or the word means remains under, to the end shall be saved. This cannot mean that they will receive eternal salvation because of their endurance. That would be a false gospel. Neither can it mean that faithful believers will be saved from physical death during the tribulation because we read elsewhere that many will seal their testimony with their blood. What it probably means, I think is what it means, is that endurance to the end will evidence reality. That is, it will characterize those who are genuinely saved. Those who are saved will endure to the end, either of their time on the earth or the coming of the Lord. In uh, John John 8.31, Jesus says to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples in need. That's if you continue, then you're my disciples. Romans 11.22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off and this is where we find the passages uh, if you if you continue for uh, Colossians 123 if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven as we read of which I Paul became a minister 1 Timothy 2 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved, speaking of the woman, in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. 1 John 2.24, therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul charges them concerning... The end times. And he says this, um, verse 1 I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they want to hear what they want to hear. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is enduring to the end the end of His course, the end of His race. And so we'll we'll either endure to the end of our course or we'll endure to the end of, for us, the Lord coming and taking His church home. Those in the tribulation period, most of them will not have an opportunity to endure to the end of the tribulation period. That's where all those martyrs come from. But there will be some uh, who will survive and they will be... Enduring to the end. He says, Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So a person cannot be saved merely by continuing without having faith, but a person will continue by being saved. We could say that one who is saved will continue to the end, and that's what's being said. There will be some who at the end of the tribulation period can truly be said to have endured to the end. But many, most, will meet their personal end before the end comes. And all Jesus said, the end is not yet. At that point, the end of the tribulation, that's the end of the age. And there's going to be a new age beginning. This section that we just read applies to the apostles and also all believers throughout history. We'll see a section that applies um, both to the time of Jesus, as you know, partially as well as to the very end of the tribulation period. That's the next section here in Mark 13. It speaks of this last seven-year tribulation period, and so that's where we will uh, pick up next, verse 14, the abomination of desolation, and then we'll we'll continue on through this discourse.